0: Hey folks, thanks for checking out Missio Church in Air, Iowa. You are listening to audio recorded at our Sunday morning service. If you'd like any more information on the gospel or would like to learn more about Missio Church, you can find us on Facebook at facebook.com backslash Missio Mount Air. So we have been walking through the book of Genesis, and we find ourselves in Genesis chapter 23 this morning. Um, and, uh, so if you're new with us, uh, you know, I'm going to uh, try to help do my best to catch you up to where we are. We, we've covered a lot and you can actually find those sermons, uh, by going to our website or podcasting. Darren can help connect you with that. Cause I don't remember all the information around that. But, uh, in Genesis, what we see is that genealogies, they mark the beginnings and the end of various sections The last genealogy that we saw was at the end of chapter 11 which gave us the descendants of this man named Terah who was Abraham's father. And in that genealogy, uh, Abraham and Sarah's names are first seen. Now we have spent weeks looking at the life of Abraham and Sarah. Chapters 12 to 22 tell their story. And their story begins with this magnificent call and this tremendous promise of God. And he promises that God will give to Abraham and all of his descendants land, that he will give him multitudes of descendants, and he will, through him, bless the whole world. Over the last 10 chapters, we've studied their journey. With all of its beauty And to be honest, with all of its ugliness, and there's been some ugliness. However, even in their mistakes, Abraham and Sarah, we see, have lived by faith, believing that all of God's promises are true. In their life, there are, as theologian Graham Goldsworthy summarizes, And Darren also talked about, I can't remember who you referenced, was it A.W. Pink maybe last week? Um, uh, There are these important biblical themes. We can't miss this. The reason why Darren and I keep going over this is because we don't want you to forget this. That when you go back to Genesis someday on your own, that you remember these truths. That there are these important biblical themes that are present throughout all of Genesis, like these seeds of the gospel and the scriptures and who God is and what he does that begin to grow and bear fruit and blossom as the scriptures go on. And here's some of the things that we see on top of what Darren already talked about last week. We see God's grace. We see grace in God's call. We see that God provides. We see that God is faithful When we are both or when we are unfaithful, frankly, the entire life of Abraham and Sarah display God's rich grace towards his people. We see God's election in the life of Abraham and Sarah for reasons we really don't know. God chose Abraham and Sarah to be the ones who would receive his incredible promises He chose them that that we don't know why. He chooses them and says, through you, I'm going to do this work to redeem the world back to myself. And these promises would be forever fulfilled in Jesus Christ, who is the one who heals the break that sin has caused. Election itself is an expression of God's grace towards his people. Goldsworthy, uh, the theologian I referenced a a moment ago in his book, According to Plan. Phenomenal book that you should read. He says this, he says, quote, whenever God acts for the good of the people, he is acting against what they deserve as rebellious sinners. And that action is grace. Election means that God chose some And not others to be objects of his grace. And so, in his grace, God chose Abraham and Sarah to be blessed, to be the one through whom the whole world would be blessed, and that God would be their God. We also see faith. Uh, as the way to be made right with God. This is a huge theme. As a matter of fact, Darren and I were talking just this week. We might even press pause on walking through Genesis to just look at what do we learn about the nature of faith as we see this huge seed. Some seeds are bigger than others, right? This idea of faith is a huge seed. But what we see in Genesis chapter 15, verse 6, it says that Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. We can't miss this. It was not his works that made him right with God. It was his faith. But faith determined his works. As we shared last week, or a couple of weeks ago, James chapter 2 says that Abraham's faith was completed. It was matured by his works. Biblically speaking, faith is never meant to be divorced from works. It is our works which show our true faith. We can't miss this, church, because sometimes we can think, if I just have faith, I'm going to put that card in my back pocket, but then the rest of my life, I'm going to live as if that means nothing to me, which is akin to getting married and still living a single life. Now, I've married you, Tara, I've married you, right? Like, we've got the certificate. I've got the ring. That was the right finger, by the way. I've got the ring. But you know what? I'm still going to make every decision as if I'm single. I'll give you my hour a week, though. Like, that's absurd, right? Well, that's a picture of faith. If we've come to Christ, if we have our faith in Christ and the God who has promised us things, then that faith is to be lived out, not just in some decisions, in all decisions, in our entire posture of life, in how we think. And it doesn't mean that we're necessarily looking at Polaroid moments. Snapshot a moment of your life. Snapshot of, you know what? We're all going to be imperfect. We're all going to be perfectly imperfect. We're all going to fall short. Don't hear this as a burden that, that, that all of a sudden now the gospel of grace is this gospel of works. No, it's all a gospel of grace. But when we place our faith in Christ, it is setting your face to Jesus and going, that is the direction I'm running in. That is the God that I worship. He is the one whom I'm living for. And even though I'm going to crawl, I'm going to fall, I'm going to sometimes look to the side, I'm going to sometimes want to go back. No, my heart is calling and pursuing Jesus. And that impacts every element of my life. This is why Hebrews chapter 11 verses 8 through 11, which was read just a moment ago, says this. We can't miss these words where he says, "By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith he went to live in the land of, of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. Why did he do that? For he was looking forward to the city that has its foundations, whose designer and builder is God. Isn't that interesting? Abraham wasn't even looking to the earthly land of Canaan as his ultimate destiny. He was looking beyond it to the day where he will dwell face to face in God's kingdom under God's care as God's child. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive even when she was past the age since she considered him faithful who had promised. Though Abraham and Sarah were not perfect, they were in fact very flawed. Everything they did was lived in the context of their faith in God and all that he had promised By God's grace, Abraham and Sarah were elected to be a chosen couple through whom a great nation would be built, inheriting the promised land of Canaan for the future blessing of the whole world. And by God's grace, they lived their lives by faith in the God who would be the one who would accomplish every last letter that he promised. So with this, we arrive at another genealogy. At the end of chapter 22... This genealogy, this one chronicles the descendants of a man named Nahor, Abraham's brother, marking the end of the primary narrative of Abraham and Sarah and the beginning of how God's promises pass to the next generation. However, this new section, it does not begin with a call from God, but with a death. It begins with the death of Sarah, And we will read, and Abraham, her husband, will deeply mourn her. But from this sad event, we will again see grace, election, faith displayed, and God's redemptive plan take another step forward. So let's read Genesis chapter 23 together. This is the word of God. Sarah lived 127 years. These were the years of the life of Sarah. And Sarah died at Cariath Arba, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. And Abraham went in to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. And Abraham rose up before his dead and said to the Hittites, I am a sojourner and a foreigner among you. Give me property among you for a burying place that I may bury my dead out of my sight. The Hittites answered Abraham, Hear us, my lord. You are a prince of God among us. Bury your dead in the choicest of our tombs. None of us will withhold from you his tomb to hinder you from burying your dead. Abraham rose and bowed to the Hittites, the people of the land. And he said to them, If you are willing that I should bury my dead out of my sight, hear me and entreat for me Ephron, the son of Zohar, that he may give me the cave of Machpelah, which he owns and is at the end of his field. For the full price, let him give it to me in your presence as property for a burying place. Now Ephron was sitting among the Hittites, and Ephron the Hittite answered Abraham in the hearing of the Hittites of all who went in at the gate of the city, No, my lord, hear me. I give you the field, and I give you the cave that is in it. and the sight of the sons of my people, I give it to you. Bury your dead." Then Abraham bowed down before the people of the land and he said to Ephron in the hearing of the people of the land, but if you will hear me, I give you the price of the field. Accept it from me that I may bury my dead there. Ephron answered Abraham, my Lord, listen to me. A piece of land worth 400 shekels of silver, what is that between you and me? Bury your dead. Abraham listened to Ephron and Abraham weighed out for Ephron the silver that he had Named in the hearing of the Hittites, four hundred shekels of silver, according to the weights current among the merchants. So the field of Ephron and Machpelah, which was in the east of Mamre, the field, uh, the, the field with the cave that was in it, and all the trees that were in the field throughout the whole area, was made over to Abraham as a possession in the presence of the Hittites, before all who went in at the city gate. After this, Abraham buried his wife Sarah in the cave of the field at Machpelah east of Mamre, that is in Hebron in the land of Canaan. The field and the cave that is in it were made over to Abraham and his property for a burying place by the Hittites. Verses 1 and verse 2 tell us that Sarah lived to be 127 years old and that she died in Kariath Arba, which later became known as Hebron. And this is located in the heart of the promised land of Canaan. She is the only woman in the Bible, this is fascinating, Sarah is the, uh, uh, the only woman in the Bible to have her total number of years recorded. This is no small thing and it's meant to honor her. She was the mother of the promised child and through her offspring a great nation would come. If you recall, in chapter 22, uh, said Abraham and Isaac went to live in Beersheba after the events that happened on Mount Moriah. Abraham most likely, see, he lived a semi-nomadic life, and he would have had to travel from place to place to feed his great flocks. And so Sarah ends up passing away about 20 miles away from Beersheba. And upon her passing, Abraham mourned, and he wept. Mourning and weeping together show the deep grief Abraham had at the passing of his wife. Through all their ups and downs, they remained married for decades. She was his bride, his co-heir of all God's promises, the mother of their son, the partner through life, trusting him as he followed the leading of the Lord no matter the cost. I can't help but think of 1 Peter chapter 3, where the Apostle Paul wrote instructions to Christian wives about how they are to live in a manner that is godly and upright, even if their husbands aren't believers. And in this passage, which to be honest, flies in the face of our culture. You want to get people mad at you, just read this passage and just sit back and watch, eating popcorn. Peter wrote to be respectful and pure in conduct, to let true beauty flow from the hidden person of the heart, not solely from what is external. And he goes on to say, this is how the holy women of old hoped in God and submitted to their own husbands. I'm just the messenger. Is it hot in here? (laughs) And then it says in verse 6 And Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. There's a treasure to be found in that passage. There was so much for Sarah to fear, but through it all, she kept faith. She was faithful to Abraham and to her God, not perfectly by any means, but her life carried a trajectory of faith by God's grace. And so scripture honors her and Abraham mourns her. They were married for decades, endured so much together. And verse 2 gives us a glimpse into what it meant for Abraham to lose his wife of so many years. I find it uh, that the longer Tara and I are married, there is an increasing depth to our bond. To our commitment that is so difficult to put into words, I think of all we've experienced in close to 21 years together. The birth of children, multiple moves, multiple church plants, grieving the loss of loved ones, caring for one another in sickness, sticking together through financial hardship and irreconcilable differences which is the stupidest reason to divorce. I don't know a couple that hasn't had irreconcilable differences. The depth of our bond now versus uh, when we were first married is more than I could have imagined. And my mind can only faintly see what what it must have been like for Abraham after years of marriage. For those who have been married a long time, you understand this, don't you? Those of you who are newlyweds, if there's any in here, or not married yet, just wait. You will, as you remain committed to one another through life and all that it throws at you, you will find a depth that only time can give. And so Abraham grieves. He grieves with his faith in the Lord. Even though he believed the Lord could raise the dead, as we talked about last week, he now grieves deeply the loss of his wife. It is not a lack of faith to grieve the loss of loved ones. It is not a lack of faith to grieve the brokenness of life even though they know the Lord. Death is a display of just how broken this world really is. But the good news is that in Christ we grieve with an eternal hope of glory on the other side of those scales. We grieve not as those who have no hope. And after Abraham spent time grieving, he rose up in order to secure a burying spot for his bride. And so in doing so, we see God's grace at work through Abraham's faith. See, the place where Sarah died, it was inhabited by Hittites. Remember, this is not Abraham's home. There is some speculation whether or not these are the same Hittites recorded later in the scriptures, but nonetheless, they're called Hittites now. And Abraham goes to this gate in the town, which is customary of the day where that's where the leaders of the town met. That's where business deals were done. And Abraham goes and says, I'm a sojourner and I'm a foreigner among you. Can you, can I get some property so that I could bury my wife? Abraham knows full well that he's in the midst of the land God promised, but it hadn't been given yet. Therefore, he is still a sojourner, living among people he doesn't belong to. And the word give in verse 4 is better understood as sell. He came humbly and is like, can you all sell me some property that I could bury my wife? But even in this, Abraham's faith in God's promise is at work. See, during Abraham's time, it was customary to bury your dead in the land of your ancestors, meaning Abraham should bring Sarah back to the land of Haran, or better yet, the city of Ur, outside the promised land where they both came from. Abraham seeking to purchase property in the land of Canaan is a declaration of faith that they are, in fact, the patriarchs of a new nation belonging to God who will take possession of this very land one day. I will not go back to Haran. I will not go back to Ur. This is now my home because God is ultimately my dwelling place. There is faith in a God-given identity. There is faith in God's promises for a great nation. And faith, the land will one day belong to that great nation. And here is where we see a principle I hope none of you forget but anchor your lives to. That is this, in life and in death, God's people have faith. In God's promises. In life and in death, God's people have faith in God's promises. And the Hittites respond kindly to Abraham's request, where they're like, hey, hear us, my Lord. You are a prince of God among us. Take our choicest tomb. You can have it and go bury your wife. But what's interesting, isn't it, is how the Hittites greet Abraham? They call him a prince of God. Abraham used lowly terms to describe himself, but they literally call him the elect of God, which is the literal translation of this verse. They say, we know that you are the elect of God. So take your choice. Take your pick. So, regardless if the Hittites really understood the accuracy of their statement or not, what they saw in Abraham is a man who belonged to God. He had had interactions with Pharaoh and Abimelech and and with a king in Gerar, and Abraham had acquired wealth and servants and livestock, and they knew it was because he belonged to God. See, in Genesis 12, God promised, you can't forget this, that a great nation would come from him. And the word he used for great had royal connotations. You will be a royal nation that belongs to God, and kings will come from you. And it's like a a, a look forward, not only to where he is now, but where Abraham and his descendants are going. You are the elect royal prince of God. They address him with respect, but they offer to give him a tomb. Do you see God's grace on display here? First, they see him as one chosen by God, and then they respond generously that he could choose whatever tomb he wants. They could have just rejected him. They could have, you know, instead they show him kindness and respect. But Abraham is not looking for a tomb to be given. He wants to purchase one. Why? Because if it's given, it can be taken away. The giver could hold it over his head, giving some power or right over him. But if he's able to purchase it, not only will he be able to bury his wife in a secure location, but it ensures future generations have a place to call theirs as well. One that cannot be taken, but one that the Lord would have authority over Abraham and his family regarding it. So at the the end of chapter 21, Abraham entered into a treaty with Abimelech, securing rights over a well in Beersheba. Giving Abraham the first foothold of land, but he still had no ownership. Securing what he asks here would provide his first land ownership in the land of promise, securing it for future generations. So Abraham asks for a specific cave, the cave of Machpelah, owned by a dude named Ephron. And Abraham's willing to pay full price for it. And Ephron, unknown to Abraham, sitting among the crowd, enters into a negotiation about the property. What we see here, this is super exciting. Genesis 23 is one of the earliest recorded land negotiations. There you go. But what you see here is that that, uh, uh, what is described in verses 10 to 16 is this land deal. And Ephron at first makes an offer to give it to Abraham, not only the cave he's asked for, but also this field. And every commentator I have read agrees on this. Ephron was not really interested in giving away the property, but it was a way to begin negotiations. And we all, we find this all the more plausible when Abraham says again in verses 12 to 13 that he desires to pay full price for it. And then Ephra- Ephraim's motivation is truly shown. He's he's not only willing to accept it, but he comes back with what seems to be a very high price. I'll give it to you. I don't, I want to pay for it. Eh, what's 400 shekels between people? <laughs> right? And so now we see this land deal take place and Abraham counts it out and buys the land. And even in this transaction, we see God's grace at work in Abraham's life. Because the simple fact that a sojourner is able to pay this extreme amount of money because of God's provision as he's carried him through the promised land is remarkable. God called, God holds, God provides, God secures, and God is down to the every detail of Abraham's life that he could actually buy the land and go bury his wife. And when the deal is done, Abraham and his descendants now own a piece of property. It's not only his first secure property, but it's representative of the whole land. God's people will one day possess. And Abraham buries Sarah there. I find it extremely interesting that through Sarah's life, Isaac was born, the child of promise. And in her death, the first property in the promised land is secured. Pretty amazing if you think about it. And what transpires here is a picture of things to come. God will fulfill every one of his promises. Including giving every square inch of the promised land to Abraham and his descendants. And it starts with a small step. Chapter 23 is one of those chapters we could easily just read, not seeing the bigger picture. But God moved his plan of redemption just a little farther down the road. Please don't miss its significance and that it was purchased not for living on, but as a burial plot. Hebrews 11.10 gives a clear picture, a clear understanding of what Abraham was really looking for, and it went beyond owning the promised land of Canaan. He was looking for something more glorious. He was looking forward to the city that has its foundations, whose designer and builder is God. Abraham and Sarah were ultimately longing for their heavenly home with God himself. Every step of their journey was saturated by God's grace. It was defined by their new identity as God's elected ones and lived by faith in God and all of his promises. Abraham and Sarah were people whose lives were utterly transformed by God's grace, by his choosing them, and his grace to live by faith. What was true of them is also to be true of all who trust in God's Son, Jesus Christ. In Christ, God lavishes amazing grace on his people by not counting their sin against them because Jesus died in our place and then we are granted righteousness, not based on us, but on Christ. He takes our filth. He gives us his goodness. In Christ, God graciously elects his people to be his. With a new identity, we become children of God made new by the power of the Holy Spirit because of Christ's resurrection. And because God has graciously elected all those who have placed their faith in Christ, we live our lives by faith in him and all of his promises, looking beyond whatever life brings, good or bad. And here's where that really meets the road. When you are in the soul-crushing depths of life, the dark night of the soul, God's promises are still true. I remember talking to my sister, the last conversation I ever had with her of any meaning, a week before she took her life. And my sister never let go of Jesus, but she allowed Things by by lots of different things. There's a whole story here that I'd be happy to share with you. But in her isolation, her darkness got worse, and she started to be moved by her feelings more than holding to what she knew was true. And she told me in agonizing tears, "I I just feel lonely and abandoned. I'm a 50 year old woman. I'm twice divorced." I don't have a job because COVID shut my job down. I just don't feel God anymore. And in that valley, the promise of Jesus who says, I will never leave you and never forsake you, is still true. I don't know what dark nights of the soul you're walking through, have walked through, I promise you there will be more. But number one, this is why we need the community of faith. Because I don't know about you, but I am very easily deceived on my own. I can think I'm more holy than I really am. You help me realize that I need God's grace. I can think that I'm doing better than I really am. But you help me see, oh, I've got a long way to go. But I can also think that I that, that I have no hope. I can think that this world is the one who dictates my life and circumstances and that I could be driven into a hole where I feel as if, no, I really am abandoned. I really am not forgiven. My, my sin and my, I, I've made too big of a mess of my life. I can't do it. And all of a sudden the noise of that hole just becomes a cacophony of noise that'll, that drowns out the truth you are forgiven. You are loved. You are holy. You are chosen. You are righteous. You are secured. You have a hope. You are cleansed. You are new. You, your God will never leave you nor forsake you. You have an eternal weight of glory waiting for you. Oh, the darkness may be dark, but the darkness is not dark to the Lord. Oh, the darkness will never overcome the light. He who has called you is faithful. Every promise in Christ is yes and amen to all who have climbed to him. Oh, we need to be reminded of that daily church because the thousand things that are going to hit you every day that says you're not good enough. You've got to simply earn it. You're only as good as your last win. You're terrible. You're never going to be good. Oh, that nature you were born with. Oh, that's just who you are. You can never change. And the scriptures say, no, 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 no. Anyone who is in Christ is a new creation. The old is gone. Behold, the new has come. Because all who have come to Jesus by faith have been crucified with him. Dead to that old life and in his life we are also united with him in a resurrection like his which means that his life is indestructible death no longer has dominion over him and that is a guaranteed validated sign sealed delivered true sign that there is nothing that will hinder the work of God in his people and in the world Do you carry that in the dark nights of your soul and don't allow prosperity to dilute it to thinking that you are good enough and accomplish that all on your own? It's all grace, baby. It's all grace. And we see a life in Abraham and Sarah that we can walk by faith and not by sight, looking forward to an ultimate heavenly city built by God's own hands. Don't get too comfortable here, ladies and gentlemen. This is not all there is. This world is deeply broken, and God is not interested in making you feel more at home here. God did not, does not desire his people to live in a land with cancer, God does not desire his people to live in a land where, 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 where we constantly feel the burden that I've got to earn something. God does not desire his people to live in a land where there's racial hatred, where politics divide, where, where we're confused about authority and where we've come from. That God does not desire us to live in a world where we have a hole in our heart that we are longing to fill with all sorts of things. God is not interested in living in a world where alcohol seems to be a greater comfort than the word of God. I love this world and I am in a, a pod, like, like I'm a glasses half full kind of a guy, but I do not want to be deceived to thinking this is the home God meant for his people. Look to a better home and shine the light of that better home in your homes. Shine the light of that better home in how you make decisions and how you hold fast in your marriages how you parent your children, how you work, how you speak. Because our hopeful home, it was not purchased by 400 shekels. It was purchased by the invaluable life of Jesus who is more worthy than everything combined in the in all creation Christ is more beautiful Christ is more worthy Christ is more valuable that's what his people were bought with God moved redemption Redemptive history a little further with the purchase of a piece of property, but it represents even greater things to come because in Jesus Christ, God fulfilled all of his promises to heal the breaks in his cause. The break between God and his world, between us, between us and creation, every break in every place and with his resurrection, we too see greater things to come where the whole world will be made new. All who trust in Christ will live with him forever in a promised land free of sin. Every tear will be wiped away and death will be no more. Do you get that picture in your head that one day God himself The the single greatest promise in all the scriptures for God's people is in Revelation 21, 22, that says, We will behold his face. There's a picture circulating, I'm almost done. There is a picture circulating around Facebook. By the way, don't build your theology on Facebook. (laughs) By the way, uh, God is the maker of the heavens and the earth, He makes sunsets and clouds, not people. The heavens declare the glory of God. And number two, there's a picture circulating around that just makes me angry. I got a little anger in my heart. I gotta lie, I'm not gonna lie. And it's called First Moment of Heaven. And if you look at that picture, it's gonna give you all the feels. It's grandparents holding grandchildren, it's it's people hugging all with big smiles on their faces, and it's just all these people hugging. You know who's not in that picture? Is Jesus. Your first moment in heaven will not be you're excited to see your grandpa. As great as your grandpa is, but grandpa is looking at Jesus, not at you. He is more beautiful. And oh, by the way, Jesus is the one who watches over your life. I don't want my father who's passed on before me or my sister to be my guardian angel. Number one, we don't become angels when we die. That's a mystical fallacy. God already made angels. We're not it. Number two, God is big enough, strong enough, all-knowing. He watches his people. That is a greater comfort. The eternal, almighty, all-powerful, all-consuming holy, infinite ancient of days who never grows weary, never tires, and never needs anyone to give him anything. He watches your life. And when we enter into heaven in the eternal gates, it will be, we will be floored by the infinite magnitude of his beauty, worth, and majesty. He is the center of heaven. He is the hope of his people. He is the one who satisfies. And he, 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 in his gentle mercy, will wipe the tear from your eye. That's going to be a day. As you sit here today, I have a, I've been doing business with this question this whole week. Where are your eyes truly fixed? Truly fixed. We all know the Sunday school answer to that question. But do you know what really draws out the answer to that question? Is hardship. We all want to avoid suffering and hardship, but we don't understand. Hardship and suffering can be one or I don't know correct, you could correct this up there. I think our, may be God's greatest gift to us. Because in those moments of wilderness, this is revealed. Our idols are shown. Our false comforts are shown. Where our faith is really put is shown. And God is so loving that he is willing to allow us to walk into those moments so that our hearts are exposed, so that he can go, what you're clinging to is not sufficient. And I have to expose it so that you see I'm the one who's sufficient for you. Lay that (coughs) idol down. But I don't want to. I know. But it's killing you. It's deceiving you. It's got a hollow foundation and it will never be able to ultimately support you. I am the God of life and mercy. I am the God who's forgiving. I am the God who made you and whom you were made for. Where are your eyes ultimately fixed? Is it on Christ and every promise that comes with it? Or is it something else? I pray with all of my heart we fight together to have our eyes fixed on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. And oh, how I need you to help me do that. Father in heaven, we come to you in the name of your Son. And God, I thank you that you are a faithful, faithful God. I pray that every one of you, I'm so thankful that every one of your promises in life and in death, in plenty and in want, in joy and in sorrow, they're all true. You are unchanging you are eternal. You never grow weary, and there's not a thing in this world that can compare to you, and there is not a thing in the spiritual world that can compare to you. God, it is our desire to have no other gods before us but you. Knowing that, God, you are good. You are good, and you are a provider. And you showed us how good you are by sending your son to bear the weight of wrath that we deserve so that we could be objects of grace and restored to hope. May our eyes be fixed on that and may that govern every breath we breathe. And when we fall, thank you that your grace is still enough. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.